on this episode of the James Quandall Show. That is true investing. When you are when you're putting money into something that has a proven track record consistently over time, then you have earned that wealth in the long term. And that's um, what you know, some people, unfortunately, I think just have to learn the hard way, James. Jordan Hall is a recovering attorney, real estate broker, and small business owner that loves helping others build their business, grow their wealth, and pursue financial independence. Jordan's book, Every Degree Debt-Free, is available on Amazon. You did warn me that Gatlinburg was Myrtle Beach of Tennessee, just in the mountains. I, our time in Gatlinburg, I would describe it more lovingly as Las Vegas in the mountains. It was nuts. I had no idea how much there was to do. And you could see sharks or alligators or shows or, I mean, anything you want to do, it's in Gatlinburg. Anything. Yeah, it's got a lot happening. I've never been to Vegas, so I I don't know how it compares. I feel like there's not gambling in Gatlinburg, at least legal gambling that I know of. So I didn't describe it that way, but I guess, yeah, it's pretty built up. So it's pretty awesome. But we had our uh, share of fun going on some hikes and found some waterfalls. And we did the touristy thing of going up on the that sky bridge overlooking the town. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, what is that called? Anakista? Yeah, it was it was neat. It was fun. But the reason I wanted to talk with you is because you've just got such a fascinating story. <laughs> and our time together, I didn't get to have everything I wanted to know answered. And I'm just really curious. First of all, are you practicing law? Did you finish law school? What's the story there? Uh, so I did finish law school, and I did then pass the bar by God's grace. So if you're ever impressed that anybody went to law school or passed the bar, became a lawyer, don't be, because they let even idiots like me get in and then get out, which is even more troubling. Um, but I figured out pretty quickly that that's not what I wanted to do. Um, so I don't I don't currently practice law. I do I have maintained my license, but I'll probably even let that go at some point um, because it's just not where my passion is. But I did make it through, James. Um, so yeah, by God's grace. Why did you finish if you weren't feeling it or did you not know yet that you weren't feeling it? Well, I am definitely a finisher. It's, it's a, it's a positive and a negative trait. Like once I start something like if I start reading a book, I've got, it may take me two years to finish, but I'm going to finish it. If I, uh, you know, start law school, I I knew I wanted to finish. Like I wasn't sure when I got out, whether I might want to practice law at some point or not. Um, plus, it was just a challenge. Like, I enjoy a challenge. So I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. So, um, you know, I finished and really, I, I did a little bit of practice for the first couple of years I was out. But um, I got my real estate license while I was in law school to pay for law school. And I figured out pretty quickly that that was a lot of fun. There was a lot of money to be made. So I ended up finally, about three years ago, basically making the decision that I was going to follow the real estate path more than the law path. I figured out also that. When people talk to their lawyer, they normally have a frown on their face. But when they talk to their real real estate broker, they normally have a smile on their face. And I like to deal with happy people, James, like you. That makes a lot of sense. And I never thought of that before. <laughs> and how did you realize, did you have that moment in law school? Like, oh, this isn't going to be for me, but I have to finish it anyway at this point? Um, I don't know if I would say it was that stark. Like it more, I, I I was really interested in everything I was learning in law school, and you learn a lot of great skills. Like you you have to learn to write, 
you have to read unbelievable amounts. So that was really, that was a practical skill. Like I, I've always loved to read, but I mean, literally the assignments you get to read in law school, you're assigned probably a, roughly a hundred pages of reading a night. And I don't know that anybody ever actually gets it all done, but you have to learn to just ingest huge amounts of information and then be prepared the next day to at least discuss them remotely intelligently if you get called on. So, you know, that, that's, uh, that was helpful. You have to do a whole lot of writing and just figure out how to put words on pages. Um, Cause that's in, in law school, like the tests, there are no like multiple choice questions or things like that. It's all essay exams. Like they give you a prompt and you write, you write for three hours. Uh, and those are the, those are the tests. So, and they all happen at the, there are no midterms, like they're all at the end of the semester. So, you know, that's, it's, it's an environment that is, um, it forces you to develop some skills. So I got a lot of benefits out of law school, not to mention the, the legal knowledge that I acquired. So I knew that it was going to help me one way or the other, even if I didn't practice law for the long term. What tips do you have for retaining more from what you read? I, I read a lot. I probably read one or two books a week, and I've done doing that for years. And I don't always retain. I don't, I don't have that great of retention of what I'm reading. I take a lot of notes and I underline and I fold pages over that way I can go back and yeah. I kind of know where in the book it was from. But do you have any tips for actually retaining what you're reading? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I'm necessarily gifted at retaining information any more than the average person. Um, I would say one thing I have figured out and I try to read a lot too, maybe not as much as you, that's impressive. But for me, if I come across a good book, like a really good book, I will read. I think it's more important to read the really good books multiple times than it is to read a lot of books. So like, I try to read a lot of books, but when I find one that is really good, I'll read, you know, some of my favorites I've read 10 or 20 times. And for me, it's just, you know, the more times I put it in my brain, the better chance I have of it sticking, James. What are some of those books? Um, so we, you and I have discussed some of these already. Some of the classics of The Millionaire Next Door. Um, and really, so Tom Stanley is one of my personal heroes. Love The Millionaire Next Door. Uh, what I like even better, though, is The Millionaire Mind, which was his follow-up to that one and where he looked at uh, DECA millionaires. Um, that's an incredible book. I mean, just from a financial investing standpoint, personal finance. Uh, one of my other top five, have you read um, Man's Search for Meaning by Victor <laughs> Frankel? I just finally read that in October for the first time because I've been suggested that book on this podcast uh, half a uh, dozen times already. Yep. And so I finally read it. I think it's possibly one of the best books written in the 20th century. Like I, I don't even have words. And I think everybody should read that. Um, just to what did you like about that book in particular that related to you? Well, I mean, you've got somebody writing who is, you know, for, for those who haven't read it, um, Dr. Frankel was a Jew. And he was in, I can't remember which concentration camp, um, Dachau, maybe? I, can't he, I think he moved to, to a few different ones. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he, he, you know, if ever there was a victim of prejudice or uh, persecution, it was him. And he basically, and he was also a psychologist. And basically he, while he was in the midst of all of that, um, took the attitude, like, these people can take everything from me except for my perspective like i can choose to, to get good out of this situation and so basically you know i've never suffered anything like that most people haven't but his thesis of that book is no matter what your situation is you can't control your situation but you can control your attitude and i just love it because it trumps anyone else who has ever suffered if he can get through it and with that attitude anybody can get through whatever they're going through 
the thing in that book that was the there were so many things that shocked me in that book living a pretty comfortable life and one of them was when his his mates were having nightmares they wouldn't wake them up because there's no way that the nightmare they were dreaming was worse than their actual reality that's a crazy picture to think about it's just it gives you you know that and and analyzing situations like that for you and i here in the safety and comfort of 21st century america allows us to at least get a perspective that you know it's difficult to have that's why i think everybody should should read that one just to understand that makes you appreciate so much more what we have and honestly puts the onus on us to make the most of what we've been entrusted with the dignity of suffering too of, of don't take away my uh, mm-hmm. my suffering like i'm doing this with honor and there's honor and suffering it i can't relate it's it's just unfathomable what they went through yep exactly exactly but that he does a great job and he doesn't even i don't i don't know if dr frankel was a believer or not but for christians um you know it's a great uh metaphor for uh just our our faith journey and it's great evidence to me of you know for our faith so great book i would definitely add that one to the list uh another one of my favorites you had which i'm blown away that you were able to get this guest but dr daniel uh lapin dr or i'm sorry rabbi daniel lapin's book thou shalt prosper fantastic book i know you talked to him recently which is i love that conversation and uh, that's a great one just the perspective of business and that business is a good thing like making a profit is a good thing which that's obviously something we're battling in our culture today a lot of people want to villainize uh successful people and then we want to act like profit is somehow inherently bad which is a joke so that's a great work also i find myself that book by by rabbi lapin doing exactly what he talked about where i'm going to be successful in my career so that then I can give back. I really do, for some reason, feel that way. It must be just always present in our life today that doing well in business somehow is in spite of someone else. Like I had to take from someone else, but that's not true. Yeah, not at all. It's hilarious. And and it's really actually not hilarious. It's really problematic. So you and I talked about this when we were together, but I actually had a had a prompt, a writing prompt when I was in college. The uh, my business ethics professor had us write from the prompt of the question was, "Can you do good and make a profit?" So the natural assumption was, if you're going to make a profit, you must be it must be very difficult to do good at the same time. When I I believe, and I know Doctor or uh, Rabbi Lapin believes, you almost can't. It's very difficult to make a profit and not do good. And I think it's partially because people have a wrong definition of profit. Like we, when we say profit, we think of some greedy business guy who's skimming off the top. Like when you, if you have a job, like a regular job, all the money you're making is technically economic profit. Like you're, you are exchanging your labor and, and coming home with an economic profit. So, and no one feels guilty. Very few people feel guilty about you know, going to their day job and feeding their family. Like that's how you, you feed your family with profit. You don't just become rich with profit. Um, so I think I think the I think profit has kind of been hijacked. The word has been, and it's definitely time to take it back and explain it for what it is, which is a good thing. What about the CEO of or the founder of a company, and they're making one thousand times more per year than the line level employee that's actually serving the customer face to face? Is that fair? Uh, well, I, I don't. I know we don't need to rehash all this because he did such a good job of breaking it down in your <laughs> conversation, but he just. You know, 
I love the way he put that when you're, when you're, it's easy, and it's easy to villainize CEOs today, but if you are somebody, one, that, that CEO or particularly that founder is employing so many people, you know, depending on how big the company is, we'll, we'll take, you know, our friend Dave Ramsey as an example, that man is now employing thousands of people. So that's a social good by almost anybody's measure right there. So that should, that alone should justify him making a nice profit. And beyond that, you're depending on how many customers you're serving. Every customer uh, you're helping in some way, you're making their lives better. So really, to me, uh, compensation is really a measure of how much you're helping other people, whether they be your employees, your customers. So if somebody has figured out a way to scale their value to the point where they're helping thousands or millions of people, why should they not be rewarded for that? Like it's just a uh, it's 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 pretty simple in my mind, but it can be hard. It can be hard in a culture like ours where uh, success is villainized to then have to reshape our thinking on that. But I think it's something we got to do. I've always had, in when I was in the corporate world, I felt that the tier or two above me in leadership, that they didn't really do anything. And that I was always the one doing all the hard work. And I was like, oh, they just kind of sit back and I'm doing all the hard work. And I always thought that until I got promoted to that next tier. And I go, <laughs> wow, I am working really hard. It's different. It's different than what I was doing before. But that guy above me now, he's really not doing anything because I'm working my butt off. And then I get promoted again. And then, oh, wow, I'm working really hard. It's just different. And I think sometimes that's what is easy to forget is that the hi- the higher you are in a business that on the on the the org chart, the more responsibility that you have, the more people you're responsible for, the bigger decisions that you're making the more you have to worry about the business and the decisions that you're making and the people that they're impacting. And I do agree that you should be compensated for it. And we all have a choice now of working wherever we want, basically. And so if you don't like your working environment, you can choose a new place to work or do something different. And you went to law school and you're a perfect example of that. You aren't necessarily in that field directly anymore, but you took the skills that you learned there and are able to apply those to what you're doing now. So I do want to talk more about what you're doing now. What real tangible skills you brought there that are helping you? Yeah, for sure. So I should probably go back to a little bit more about me, um, how I got how I got in this situation that I'm in, James. So when I was uh, a little kid, 13, 12, 13, like I lived, my family had a pretty solid middle class lifestyle. Like we weren't rich, but we definitely weren't poor. Everything seemed to be going well, um, but my dad, um, kind of like me, was very ambitious. I wanted to get ahead. Uh, was a was an entre- entrepreneur, at least a wannabe entrepreneur. Um, he had a, like a traditional bank job and was doing pretty well, but he wanted more, which you know is great. And a lot of people do. And so he decided at, when he was about forty, he had a good good uh, amount saved up in his four hundred one k. He decided to borrow against that and invest in a real estate deal. And, um, you know, the deal may or may not have been a good one, but uh, he borrowed heavily against his 401k, which, as you know, is not a great plan because that subjects you to a lot of risk. One of the risks is when you borrow against your 401k, if you lose your job, that whole that whole loan becomes due uh, in 60 days. And so, unfortunately, shortly after he borrowed that money, he lost it. He got into an accident and then lost his job shortly thereafter, which triggered that whole loan to be due and also threw a wrench in his whole real estate deal that he had going on because that was how he was financing it. So threw my family into a complete economic tailspin. Um, they did not 
fortunately have to declare bankruptcy and they did manage to hang on to their house, but they basically lost everything else because on top of that money they had borrowed, they were pretty heavily in debt, you know, in cars and their house and credit cards and just your typical American stuff. So anyway, I watched all this happen as a, I think it was 13 when that happened. And as a result, my mom had to have some pretty frank discussions with me um, to tell me, I, I remember actually that all went down in October and about this time of year, late November, she sat me down and said, Hey, Jordan, you know, we're in rough financial shape right now. You're not going to get this Christmas is going to be different than all the Christmases before. Like you're not going to get all the presents that uh, you've gotten in years past. It's actually going to be pretty meager. And um, she went ahead and took that opportunity to say, you're 13. Now you're going to go into college, hopefully in four or five years, we're not going to be able to contribute that. Um, and it was it was tough to take, but she didn't just leave me there. She said, you know, I, I believe that if you want to go to college, you can you can pay for it yourself. Like you can figure out a way. And she discouraged me from taking out student loans because she had seen what that did to her. Um, so in that conversation, she really, you know, empowered me and made me feel like I could, if I wanted to accomplish those things, could go out and do it on my own. So there as a middle schooler and then in high school, I started um started a lawn care business, started making money, saving up for school, getting prepared. And I started to have to build those skills of going out in the marketplace and getting a customer and keeping a customer and all that sort of stuff. And so I was able to uh, use those skills to pay for college debt-free. Um, and then when I decided to go to law school, I was kind of like, man, I want to keep this going. And, and by that time, Dave Ramsey was uh, our, one of our mutual friends was preaching against student loans and that sort of thing. So, uh, when I decided to go to law school, I was like, you know, I don't want to do this unless I can do it debt free. And thanks to some scholarship money and uh, all that sort of thing, I was able to combination scholarship money, working while I was in school um, and going to a cheap in-state public law school. I was able to get through all that debt free. Um, wow. And so that really set me up. Um, so I'm 31 now. I graduated law school when I was 25. That really set me up to be able to uh, get into the workforce and then have options and not have to follow the legal path if I didn't want to. Before we get into the options that you had and what you're doing now, I'm curious while you were 13 and through the rest of middle school and high school and you were working hard, saving money, and, and I'm assuming getting decent grades, what were your peers or your friends up to? Like, How were you different or did you find people that were doing a similar thing or what, what, what did that look like? Uh, so one of the cool parts of all that is, I mean, I, I still had a great, you know, I played sports in high school and still had, a, I worked a lot in college, but still had a, a great college experience. I lived on campus and, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't, the funny thing is I didn't, I certainly didn't go without, I was just, I really liked to work. And so, you know, I'd scheduled my classes during college in the morning and then the afternoons and evenings, I would go run my lawn care business. And I didn't, I had a lot of fun doing that. Plus it put a little extra money in my pocket to, to, to do some things that otherwise I wouldn't be able to do. And I actually in high school and college was able to hire a lot of my friends to work with me. So we were having a ball. Like we wouldn't have known, you know, we, we just, we're out there cutting grass, making money, having fun. I mean, probably getting into more trouble than we should have, uh, even on the job site, but it was, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun and I wouldn't trade it for anything. You have these options because do you do you feel like you have the options that you had post law school? Why? Why did you have those options? Why doesn't everyone else have the same number of options? 
well, obviously, the student loan crisis is uh, ever growing in America, and it is it is so devastating to see. And I know you've got friends who who you graduated with who are just under this weight. And some, I mean, some of my friends from law school, even undergrad, have several hundred thousand dollars in student loans um, that one way or another they're going to have to pay back. And it ends up shaping, I've seen how for some of them it ends up shaping what kind of job they have to take out of school, when they can get married or start a family, all those sort of things. Um, and I obviously have been fortunate to have some options um, because I'm not under that weight to pursue the career I want to pursue to, uh, you know, my wife and I were able to have start having kids pretty soon after out of college um, or out of, when I was out of law school. Um, actually, my so my wife, uh, we got married just a year after I graduated college. So my, my first year of law school, she was actually, by the time I graduated law school, she had, she had gotten her MBA. She's a couple of years older than me. She had also done it debt-free by working for the school that she went to. Um, she, she got out of school and started working before I did kind of doing the corporate thing. And she figured out she hated it. I mean, absolutely hated it. Like it was come home from work every day. And I mean, in many cases in tears. So one of the great benefits for me and for her was when I finally did get out of law school and we were making a little bit of money, she was able to quit her job and she was working with me for a while um, on some of the businesses I was working on. And uh, shortly thereafter, um, we were blessed to get pregnant and she ended up uh, becoming a full-time stay-at-home mom, which she is to this day. But those are some of the options that we were able to have because we, because we were able to avoid debt, um, because we had some people who were pointing us in the right direction. Um, and, and you know, once again, this is not. We were able to do this because we had a lot of people. We had some bad examples in front of us that we learned from, and then we had some people who were really encouraging us to do, uh, to do it this way. So I try to encourage as many people as I can, whether in college or, or graduate school or whatever, to avoid debt pretty much at all costs. What was it like working with your wife? That's a good question, James. Um, so for us, it was it was good. We didn't do it for a long time. It was only about a six or six or seven month period. But I think I think in the long term, we might have had some challenges in the short term. She was just so grateful to not be working at the job she had hated. Um, and I was just so happy to be done with school that we were just you know kind of blissfully ignorant. Um, but we didn't have any any major issues. I don't know how that would have gone if we tried to do it for the long term. Although I do know spouses who work together, you know, 40 hours a week. They seem to love it. Some people can make it work. Some people can't. So if the borrower is slave to a lender, which makes sense in that scenario of being in debt you you don't have as many options because you got to keep doing what you're doing to continue to pay the debt so the millionaire mind book which i loved and i'll link to that book and man searches for the meaning and the millionaire next door and to your website and everything else that we're talking about here over at quandall.com slash hall that's quandall.com slash h-a-l-l and i'll link to the rabbi lapin episode in there as well but what would you say you really distilled from that book that's helping you today with building wealth? But so I think, and with the people I talk to today who want to be wealthy um, or want to achieve financial independence. So I'm sure you're familiar with the FIRE movement, James, are you? I am familiar with the FIRE movement and I have my own gripes with it. Yeah. And I, I overall, I... Um, I really appreciate the FIRE movement. I consider myself a part of it to a degree. Um, for those who don't know, it's financially independent, retire early. So I'm all about financial independence. I'm encouraging people to achieve that. I myself am pursuing that and encourage everybody to achieve it as soon as you can. 
I think the biggest issue that I see and people that I talk to, particularly young people, you know, in their 20s or 30s, is trying to get there too fast. Proverbs says, he who hastens to get rich will not go unpunished. Whether it's, you know, thinking you're going to get there quickly with crypto or you're going to borrow insane amounts of money to get in on this real estate market, you're just not going to build wealth next year. It's for most people, it's not going to happen, but it can happen for almost anybody in 10 years or 20 years. And so that to me is the message of the millionaire mind. You have Tom Stanley surveying and researching thousands of millionaires who built their wealth over a period of uh, 10, 20 plus years. And that is how wealth is built. And that is how wealth is maintained. And that is how people in our generation, millennials, are going to achieve financial independence. I think some of us, and I, and I fall into this temptation too, like you're doing, you're, you're investing every month and you're working hard and doing that sort of thing, but it just gets monotonous after a while. And you think, I, this is taking too long. I need this to happen quicker. And, and once you have that thought, and then once you're taking action based on that, then that, that's where it all falls apart because you, you disrupt what you've been doing right to try to short circuit the process and it just never works. It's kind of like, you know, my, and not to throw them under the bus. Luckily my parents have, have been able to write their financial ship and they're in, in great financial shape now in their sixties. But what they did um, in their forties caused them to lose a decade of economic progress because, and, and, you know, they had been building their 401ks and building their savings, but I know it just was like one day he looked up and said, this is not happening fast enough. And he who hastens to rich to be rich will not go unpunished. Um, and all the data tells us it just takes a while. I hate it, but it just does, Jay. My gripe with the fire movement, and I think some of the principles are fantastic. Live live on less than you make, yep. put away money, put it into investments, and just appreciate what's important and don't go keeping up with the Joneses and spending money unnecessarily. My issue with the FIRE movement is that so often I think the part that's forgotten about is like just enjoying the journey mm -hmm. of where you are right now. If you don't like the work you're doing and you're just going to slave away because it pays really well, so that way in five years you can never have to work again, I think that's the wrong way to go. I think the better way to go is find something you love to do today that you won't ever want to quit and still live on less than you make and put away money and live thrifty and not just have this dream that when you're 40, you'll never work again. I, I totally agree. And that's, and that is where you and I have the same gripe. I, the financial independence part of fire, I'm, I'm totally down with the retire early part. I am not because retire, you know, I don't, you know, I know you love what you're doing. You probably don't ever intend to retire. Like I, I don't intend to retire and quit working either. Like to me, becoming financially independent, the value is not in stop and quitting working. It's in being able to do work that you love. Um, so yeah, I don't, that's where I much prefer your philosophy of uh, doing what you want to do for the rest of your life, as opposed to like escaping from the nine to five grind. Like I've, I feel like I've already escaped from that grind. I love what I do every day. Um, and I'm at this point, I'm just trying to get to a, a place where I can have the option to do what I want, when I want. And, uh, you know, that, that to me is the value of being financially independent. So what is the way to build wealth slowly and not try to do it overnight? 
Uh, well, it's as you know, James, it's surprisingly simple and it's even boring. Uh, our, our friend Dave Ramsey, I think his plan lays it out very well. Um, I think Tom Stanley and his books lays it out very well. I personally see a lot of value in getting and staying debt free, including your house. Uh, and this is this is kind of one of the elements that I see a lot of people our age falling into with these really low mortgage rates um, and the stock market and, and the real estate market both kind of going crazy right now. Uh, as a real estate broker um, and just as an observer, I see a lot of people say, well, I mean, you're crazy if you don't borrow money, as much money as you can on your house at, you know, two or three percent and then invest it in the market and make 10 or 12. And Ouch. <laughs> what is that? Is this your philosophy or something? No, I said, ouch, as in that could go wrong really quickly. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and that's what people don't see. Like that, you know, so the, the formal name for this is arbitrage. And that works if it works. I mean, if, if, if the market consistently gives you 10 or 12%, then you should be able to take advantage of that margin. But it's problematic for a couple of reasons. One is we do have blips like 2008, where both the, market, the real estate market and the stock market tank significantly. If that happens to you under this plan, you've just lost a ton of money and you've got a ton of money at risk. But the other problem is more of a philosophical one is if you're going to count on borrowed money to invest, in the long term, you're going to subject yourself to those market shifts and you're just going, you're going to get hammered. So what I see in uh, the research that Ramsey has done and in the research Dr. Stanley has done is that most wealthy people, people who become financially independent, they do not see their house as a source of wealth. They see it as a source of stability and a financial foundation. So in my case, I am, my wife and I are in the process of paying off our house. We should have it paid off in the next year or two. Um, and I'm not looking to make, like my house is not what I make money on. My house is where my family lives. My house is where I sleep. Like I want to feel secure and safe and feel like that is never taken away from me. I will take risks with capital beyond that. My house is not a source of capital. It's a source of safety and stability. Um, and once you get to that point, I have seen, um, so I've got a good friend who is 38 and he is a millionaire, um, and he's got a paid off house. And now he's got all that extra capital in terms of his income that he can invest and he can be even more aggressive with that investing. Um, you know, for me personally, if you, if you own your own business or you own your own real estate, you can make way more money investing in those things in general, even than you can in the market, but those things are more risky. Uh, so you don't want to be taking those risks with money that you're using to finance your your housing. You want to take risk with the money that you want that all to be secure. And then you can take risk with money over and above that. And that is what truly wealthy people do and people who stay wealthy. I think we've got a lot of people right now who they have large net worths that are built on sand. And if and when this market corrects, which it will in some way, um, you're going to see a lot of those folks who may be young and wealthy, appear wealthy at the moment, um, not be so much. They may not last uh, the next 10 years. And that really, to me, I give everything a 10 year test. Like if it, if it works, if it works in 10 years, then I, then I will invest in that. If, it, if in 10 years, there's a good chance it's not going to be here. It's not going to last 10 years. Then that's probably not a good way to go. Yeah, that that I I've heard before that sometimes the problem with timing the market is you have to time it twice because you've got to yep. get the money back out. Actually, my my good friend to, had a paid off home in two thousand and seven and took out one hundred thousand dollars of equity and then put that on the stock market. <laughs> it all basically went away. Mm -hmm. 
what happens usually in the psychology of people and investing is when that hundred thousand turns into twenty thousand overnight, they sell it before they think it goes to zero, and yeah. then they don't ever have a chance of that coming back over the next twelve years because it's really hard to hang on if you made sort of a rash decision in the first place and didn't have a slow and steady idea. Yep, exactly. So that that to me is the difference in investing and speculation. The speculation is I'm going to buy this now and I'm going to sell it sometime and I'm going to take my money out. Uh, and the problem with that is you have to be right twice, right? You have to buy in at the right spot and then you have to sell it at the right spot. We'll take uh, crypto as an example. And I'm not a, I don't hate crypto. Like I think crypto is going to be here for a while, but it's just unproven and it's very difficult to understand. And most people are not investing in crypto, crypto they're speculating. And some people have made quote unquote, a lot of money recently. But the problem is, if you if you invested ten thousand in crypto a couple of years ago, and now you're sitting at a hundred thousand, which is a great investment, you sell today and go ahead and cash out, or do you hang on because you may sell today and it go to two hundred thousand in a few weeks? Um, so that timing the market just doesn't work. Every you know all the long term investors know this. Uh, the big boys, you know, the Warren Buffetts and people like that, they, they they didn't get wealthy by hitting it right once or twice. They hit it right every year. For a long, long time, and they're not worried about getting rich next by next year. They're worried about being rich in ten years or twenty years, and that's just a much better way to go. That is true investing when you are when you're putting money into something that has a proven track record consistently over time. Then you have earned uh, that that wealth in the long term, and that's um, what you know. Some people, unfortunately, I think just have to learn the hard way, James. So if you don't have a business of your own and you don't have a real estate portfolio to put the money in, where do you put the money? Like where do you, where's a okay spot to invest in the future, a long-term future? So one of one of my favorite things that Dave Ramsey says is you should never invest in anything you don't understand. And that's just a fantastic rule. So I would want I would number one figure out what you do understand and I would put money in that and if you don't understand it, I would not. Uh, one thing that's easy to understand uh, for most people is the stock market, particularly mutual funds. Um, so that's where I've done, you know, I started investing in mutual funds when I was 15. Uh, so I've been investing in mutual funds for 16 years now. And uh, particularly index funds are a great place to invest. And they're low risk. They're going to do what the market does. Um, once again, they may year over year, you may or may not make money. But very simple. You can get in at $100 a month or whatever. And uh, you can usually invest in those for your 401k or your company-sponsored plan, which is the, the best place to start, right? So I'm self-employed. I don't have these available. But some folks um, you know, have a 401k or 403b available with a match, meaning you put in $100, your company will match you at $100, in some cases up to 3 or 6% of your income. So start there because you can double your money initially, and then you're getting into a, a solid investment like a mutual fund or an in index fund of some sort. So that's where I would start, and that's where, uh, and it, it gives allows people to start getting comfortable with making those investments. But I would only do that if you can leave that money alone for the long term. And what's the long term? Is that five years, ten years, twenty years, fifty years? Uh, I think most most professionals would say at least five years. I prefer ten, just because you know when when we look at the market, you know every two out of every five years on average is going to be a down year in the stock market. So if you invest for five years, you're probably going to make money. Um, but less than one out of every 10 years, if you, if you invest today, then the chances are very low that in 10 years, it's going to be worth less and they're substantial, that it's going to be worth more, um, probably a lot more. So I, I look for, I, I try to not make investments that I can't leave alone for 10 years. 
So if I'm saving up for a house and I've got some cash, it, is it best just to keep it in a savings account or a money market right now? Or is if, if it's, who knows, it could be a year from now or two years from now that I'm buying a house, what would you do? Yeah, uh, obviously there's a lot of debate about this. I personally would just keep it in a savings account if it's that short term because the market fluctuations, I mean, the market can fluctuate as we've seen, you know, it's up 25% this year, um, but it could be down 25% next year. So if you've got a short term window like that, uh, I would, I personally put my money just in a, in a money market at my um, credit union. And I, that way I know it's there. Um, and this brings up another topic. You know, a lot of people are very concerned about inflation right now. Um, and for good reason. I think we're going to see some inflation we already have in the short term. Um, but that what that does is causes people to think, oh, gosh, I better I better buy my buy a house right now because you know, inflation is going to go crazy or I better do this. I better borrow money. Like people use inflation. Don't use inflation as an excuse. Like solid financial principles are going to work in an inflationary market or or not, whether no matter what the market's doing, you follow the, the core principles of working hard saving a good portion of your income, investing it for the long term, you're going to be okay. Inflation inflation can't stop uh, long-term financial principles if you adhere to them. Before we change gears out of money and investing, I do want to ask you if you're not financially independent about the importance of emergency funds. <laughs> and it's it may be sort of a a, a boring topic, but it just helps me sleep better at night knowing that there's this, you know, a small amount of money that just sits there for a rainy day. I feel like this is an underhand pitch to tell you a story about how I learned the value of emergency funds. Is that what this well, is, James? I, well, it can be. I, I know you have a story, a personal story about it. And yeah, just go ahead and share that. All right, James. So when I was in law school, um, trying to pay for law school debt-free, I was, uh, I was, I got married my first year and we were living basically hand to mouth. Like my, my wife had graduated. She was working, bringing in a little bit of money. Um, I was working, uh, on the, in the afternoons and evenings, uh, trying to scrape by, but we were, we had no money. We were, we were paying our bills. We didn't have any debt, but we had no, basically no money. I would, uh, save up a little money and make a tuition payment do that sort of thing. So, um, interesting thing about, uh, how I had to make my payments in law school was that if I paid the school, I'm paying the school directly. I'm not paying through student loans. So I'm literally going to the business office and making, uh, they let me break up the payments. Like if I could make a couple of semesters, which was helpful. How many other people were doing that? I'm just curious. Do you have any idea? Did they say you're the only one? <laughs> um, I, I, I didn't discuss this openly with a lot of people at my school. So I don't know of anyone else who was doing this. Um, I mean, percentage wise, uh, you know, 70 plus percent of people borrow uh, for college and graduate school. So I know there were some other folks who were by one means or another paying cash, but not, not many other people were cutting grass. So I would, I would go mow lawns in the middle, you know, in the afternoons um, or in the mornings. And then I would literally go to my law classes smelling of gas and gasoline and grass. So um, it was kind of an interesting experience. Um, <laughs> But as I'm making these payments directly to the school, they if I paid, they would accept a personal check, so I couldn't pay with a check. And if I paid with a debit card, they would hit me with uh, this big processing fee. So to avoid all that, what I would do is I would literally go, I would save up bank money in my savings account through the semester, and then when it came time to make a payment, I would go and withdraw actual cash. Um, so that that worked really well um, most of the way through school until year three, which is your final year of law school. Um, and this is what happened one day. So I'd saved up several thousand dollars um, through the semester. 
and it was i think it was in october it was toward the end it was uh right before we had to register for classes for the next semester so the last day the day before the last day to make my payment which was a friday on that thursday i i knew i needed to withdraw my cash that thursday afternoon because i had cl early classes on friday and uh i would need to take the money with me to the school to make my payment so and at this at this point my wife was out of town for a couple of days on on a business trip of her job or something like that but anyway, on that Thursday afternoon, I get out of class uh, about three o'clock. I go to my credit union and withdrew the amount of my payment, which was $2,220 in actual cash. And I put it in my pocket. And my plan was to take it to the school with me the next morning, which was about an hour away from where I was working. So you know, I didn't want to have to drive back in the middle of the day to um, go to the bank. So I, got, I took that cash, put it in my pocket. And then my plan was to, to mow grass for the, the rest of the day, which is what I normally did. I'd go to class in the mornings and then in the afternoons and evenings, I'd cut grass and, and study at night. Um, but I went to my first lawn, got to it. I pulled my mower off the trailer and zipped over the front yard. And then I headed to the back. Now, in the backyard of this place, there was a bird bath. And as I pulled up to it on my zero turn mower, I had to kind of quickly reverse to then go around it. But with that little jerk, James, <laughs> I heard something underneath my mower. And as I turned my head to the right, I saw a sprinkling on the grass of green and gray confetti. Like I had just shredded up this $2,220. And in the moment I was like, there's, that didn't really just happen. Like, this is a joke. Um, but once I hopped off the mower and grabbed all, grabbed all that shredded cash up, I was like, no, this is real. This really just happened. And so I still couldn't really quite come to terms with it. How on earth did it come out of your pocket? <laughs> I, st I still don't know. So I think it, if I recall correctly, I think it was in an envelope and or an envelope, depending on how you say that. And I had a like, the it was just stupid. Like the pocket on those pants was was very loose. And I, I was just it was foolishness. Like I didn't want to leave it in the truck because, you know, it's a couple grand. So I don't want somebody breaking into my truck and taking it. Um, it was just foolish. I didn't want to I didn't want it off my person. But anyway, so um, uh, here I am. I've got $2,220 that has been mulched by my lawnmower. So my wife's out of town. I, don't, I can't, and I don't want to tell her because you feel like an idiot and you don't know what you're going to do. It's her money too. So I decided I would rush to my parents' house, which I was, um, so I was working in, a, in my hometown of Frankfurt and I was going to school in Louisville, which is about an hour away. Um, and I was, that night, I, uh, I went to my parents' house. I'm like, mom, dad, like, I just mowed over this money. I don't know what to do. So my wonderful parents helped me that evening reassemble all these hundreds of thousands of pieces of little shredded cash. We taped it back together. And by the end of the evening, by some miracle, it was mostly them, not me, because I was just sitting there panicking. They had reassembled all this money. I think it was like $20 bills and then like 20 or ten twenties or something like that, or maybe 11 20s. Um, anyway, we were able to reassemble this completely. Like, and in the end, we were only missing one little corner of one $20 bill. Um, <laughs> so that was amazing in and of itself. But now we have this money that's been mulched up and taped back together. But I figured I couldn't take that to the school. Like that might raise some eyebrows. So I'm like, okay, next, I'll try to you know take this back to the credit union. Hopefully they can just exchange it. So I, the next morning, which is the last day to make my payment, I skip my first class and I go to the credit union and I say, Here, you know, I present them with this money. I'm like, hey, you know, I just mowed over this. Everybody's laughing and, you know, making fun of me. I need, you know, actual bills to, to take down to the school. And the girl, the teller is like, uh, she calls over the manager of the of the branch and she's like, yeah, we can't, we can't just exchange this money for you. This is like a fraud issue. Like, 
people people do this as like a scam. So all we can do is send it to the Federal Reserve. They're going to have to look at this, verify that these are all the same bills, and then maybe they will send the money back. But we've got to send that. That like takes several weeks. So I'm like, okay. Um, I didn't have any other option. So I give them the money, hoping that eventually I'll get it back. But that leaves me no money. And then when I say no money, I mean like we we are scraping by. We are living paycheck to paycheck. And I've got to make this payment if I want to continue my law studies. Um, and it's the time of the semester where I've got to register for classes. It's, it's almost time for finals. And if I don't sit for those, like I'm done. Like you, you in law school, as I said earlier, you, there are no midterms. There are only finals. And if you miss your finals, you miss the entire semester or fail the entire semester. So I finally, I give them the money, tell them to send it to the federal reserve. I walk out of the, the branch of that credit union and I call my wife and I'm like, I don't know what to do. Uh, I just mowed over the money I have for school today. I'm at a loss. And so James, my wife, you, you haven't met her yet. Eventually you will. She is very, very sweet um, and very, very calm in general. Like I get riled up. She doesn't get riled up. I expected her to get riled up in this scenario though. She didn't. She was un, unexpectedly calm. And after she, you know, I, I think she said a couple of disparaging things, which she had the right to, but she very quickly was reassuring. And she said, it's going to be okay. And she reminded me of something that I had honestly forgotten. And that's that when we got married, she had brought several thousand dollars into our marriage that we had set aside in a separate account as our emergency fund, which is the way you should do it. Like you should have that money out of sight, out of mind. So we had set that money aside and I'd forgotten about it even in the midst of all this. So she said, that was the only money we had, but she said, take that money. We'll figure out the rest later. Go make your payment. So I did that. And I got there that afternoon to the law school business office to make my payment made it in the nick of time and that literally salvaged my law school career and my you know my my getting a degree all that sort of thing because if you if i had missed that semester like i don't think i would have gone back like because it would have been a huge financial investment loss um i would have had to stay an extra full year because some of those classes were tandem courses um you know that if you missed the first one you can't take the second one all that sort of thing so having that money handy literally saved my law school experience saved me ended up saving me thousands if not hundreds of thousands of dollars when it's all said and done um and it all because my wife had seen fit to set, set several thousand dollars aside as an emergency fund you know it sounds like it may even sound like i'm overselling the value of, of an emergency fund but you can see how that one issue would have triggered a whole lot of other consequences had we not been able to cover that and you know maybe i would have maybe I would have been able to think of something else um, to get out of that. But it was, it was truly like, if I didn't make it that day, like these consequences were this, this whole series of unfortunate, uh, unfortunate events could have unfolded that we were able to avoid. So we, from then on, we always maintained an emergency fund. We do to this day. And uh, luckily we haven't been, had to tap into it for reasons like that, but it is uh, the, the emergency fund is just such a foundation foundational element of your financial plan because it keeps you on track when life wants to knock you off. How do you actually make the emergency fund? Do you put, do you suggest putting it in a separate bank account or I mean what do you where do you actually put the money? Do you keep it in cash in your house? Like what how do you actually do it? I don't think it's a bad idea to keep some money in cash at your house. Like I've got a I've got a friend who I think keeps like $1000 um, in cash at your house cuz you never know when, you know, it may be bank holiday or or a weekend or whatever and you need actual cash. Um, but as far as the, you know, most, 
most financial advisors will recommend for a fully funded emergency fund to be three to six months of your expenses. So that's going to be a pretty large sum that you don't want to keep in actual cash at your house. Um, so just in a separate uh, account at your bank or at your credit union, um, ideally something that maybe earns a little bit of interest. But once again, this is this is not an invest. This money is not an investment. Like you're not trying to make money with this money. You're trying. It's an insurance policy to keep you on track when you know your money gets your something gets mowed over by the lawn uh, mower of life, like happened to me. So you want to keep it somewhere safe and secure, somewhere where you can get your hands on it if you need to. But it's also helpful to make it a little difficult to get to. Like our our major emergency fund is actually kept here in my wife's original bank here in Tennessee. We live in Kentucky, about two and a half hours away. So if we needed to get to it, we could, and we have online access. But um, if we wanted to withdraw like the whole thing, we'd probably have to drive two and a half hours to get to withdraw it. Um, so that has worked well for us in helping you keep our hands off of it. And um, if we really needed to get access to it, we could. We keep a little bit of other money liquid and available uh, in our personal credit union that I could get any time. But you want a little bit of distance between you and it, in my opinion, keep you from, from tapping into it at every little need. Um, but you also need to have access to it. It doesn't need to be in mutual funds or real estate that you would have to, you know, that would take days or weeks or months to get to. Fit really hit the shan, as they say. It's easy to forget about the money. Mine's just in a separate account at a bank we don't use for anything else. We don't have check writing on it. We don't have a debit card for it. To get that money, I have to go into that bank and show my ID and have them give it to me or do a transfer from online banking. But it's not easy. And then I forget about it. I really do. And we're like figuring out our financial situation. I often remember at the last moment, oh, we have this other account with this small amount of emergency money, which I've never needed to tap into. And I find that to be a very common story. You have an emergency fund, you set it there, and then for some reason, mm -hmm. emergencies don't seem to come your way as often. Exactly. No, you're exactly right. I think that's a great setup. And, and uh, what D Dave Ramsey calls the Murphy repellent, uh, Murphy's law, if it can go wrong, it will. But once you have that money in place, like you, I've noticed, like it just, we, we haven't had a major emergency, knock on wood, since that, the, the, the mowing over the money incident, and you do tend to forget about it like I did, which is the way it should be. This should be uh, something that you put aside, you forget about, you don't intend to ever use unless you absolutely have to. But man, James, when you need one, you really need one. And I think it actually changes your mentality in general to where things don't actually seem like an emergency that normally would. For example, earlier this spring, uh, our car hit 100,000 miles and we wanted to just make sure it was going to last a while longer. So we took it to the uh, the shop and it was about $1,000 for a complete tune-up, mm -hmm. a full tune-up. And that could have been an emergency. Yep. But it wasn't because we had money set aside, and so it didn't uh, didn't slow us down on our other goals. So I really think it just helps you just with your positive outlook on money in general, just having a little bit of money put aside. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a great example because that allowed you guys you guys spent a little money to maintain that, but it keeps you uh, keeps your other investments on track and gives you more. Uh, not only financial resources, but emotional resources to continue on that journey. So these, this is where, and this is where I feel like people get hung up. They they think that putting aside money in an emergency fund is going to slow their wealth building or financial independence journey down, or they think that paying off their house is going isn't they're they're missing out on opportunities. 
And really what they're doing, what you have done, is you've laid a solid foundation to now really start building wealth with capital the way it should be uh, and not having, not trying to make two things do, one thing do two different things. Like you're not worried about your emergency fund being a source of, of wealth building and an insurance policy. You have labeled it your insurance policy, set it aside, and you can focus on building wealth with your other with your other money, which is the way it should be. So I want to ask one more money question, then I have a few other things I want to talk about. And it's actually making more money. So we talked about investing, we talked about saving, we talked about emergency fund. But what about just increasing the the earnings, the, your actual income? Do you have any suggestions for how to do that? Um, so obviously, a lot of ways you can go here. For me, I am definitely have a have an entrepreneurial bent, um, and so for me, that is either investing in one of my own businesses or you know, creating something. I think you know, and I'm not even the the thing the way people make money with side businesses these days or online businesses is just mind blowing. Like I'm not that creative. Like I do traditional things. Like when I was in high school and college, I ran a lawn business. And uh, nowadays I have my real estate business and then I have a, a small construction business with a crew that I run, like not, not super creative, but um, if you can figure out a way to run a business, uh, whether on the side or full time, that is, that to me is the best way to increase your income. If you've got a traditional job, obviously um, working that as hard as you can. And if you are in a position where you can get raises and move up, then that's a, you know, that's a great way to go. But I, I just really, I'm of the mindset, you eat what you kill. Um, so I love, uh, if there's something that I can go out and do, I can add value and then I can get compensated for that. I'm going to do it. And my best investments have been in my own businesses or in me learning some new skills that I could put into practice. Um, and so I always encourage people, I think and in that Tom Stanley book, I don't know whether it's the millionaire next door or the millionaire mind or both maybe. He says that two thirds of America's millionaires are self-employed in some capacity. Um, and that just gives you control over your income more so than a traditional job where you, you, know, you may be able to get raises here and there or whatever, or move up. But when you own your own thing, you are in complete control of it. And so you, you work, you put in some ingenuity, you're compensated. And so that's why I encourage people to do if they're looking to increase their income. And if you have some you know, technical knowledge or, anything like that. It's just insane what you can do these days. You talked about being entrepreneurial yourself. How have you, as your, your wife's not working, do you ever feel a little afraid of these businesses that you're running and being able to continue to support your family? Uh, that, so that's a great question. Like for me, no, honestly, this is the way um, it's always been for me. And one thing I figured out is that, you know, I think a lot of folks, particularly people who are traditionally employed, they feel like security comes from a job. And I've never felt that way. I think security comes from your ability to go into the marketplace and add value. And so that is what I am. That's my only concern is, am I in the marketplace adding value? If I'm doing that, the income will come. And I've never had, you know, never had any issues with that. And I don't sense that, you know, we, we, we maintain some savings now and um, try to make sure we're covered. But I uh, I've always found that if you will if you will focus on adding value in the marketplace, then that's where security really comes from. I mean, if you even if you have a traditional job, if you're not showing up every day and adding value, your job's going to go away. Like the security does not come from an employer or from a a title or anything like that. It comes from your ability to add value in the marketplace. And if you're doing that, then you know secure that that's the most secure you could possibly be. 
Plus, if you've got multiple sources of income, uh, one may go down, one may suffer, but your the other one uh, or other ones may continue to add value. And so that's uh, that's the way I've tried to craft our income to have one multiple sources and two to be dependent on us adding value in the marketplace. That's a great point. And I think he mentioned that in the millionaire next door or the millionaire mind about how the average millionaire has multiple sources of income. They're not getting all their income from a single W-2 or one spot. Like for myself, for example, I have various incomes that are coming in that aren't that impressive. It's maybe $10 a month or $20 a month. Or uh, a couple weeks ago, we sold our friend's beef at the farmer's market and made a couple hundred dollars. And none of it's like going to help us retire right now, but it does give us the ability, any one of these, I could scale up at any time if I wanted to. And it gives me the confidence to know that what I'm doing is safe. I do get afraid sometimes like, oh my gosh, I have all this on my shoulders. I have to continue to hunt every single day because when you are self-employed, the the customers don't necessarily just show up at your door. You have to go out and find them every single day. It, It does get, it is, it is tiring, but I think how you said even a regular W-2 job doesn't isn't secure. And I think we've seen that over this last year with how many jobs disappeared. Yes, absolutely. You're exactly right. I think people are, are waking up to the fact that those so-called secure jobs are not near as secure as we all thought. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, whatever you're doing, whether you're doing some complicated business or something really traditional and simple, the basic the basic skills of an entrepreneur are the same. Can you uh, produce a good or service that other people want? Can you go out and find a customer or find customers for that good or service? And then can you keep those customers? Like it's very simple. Um, and there's some really straightforward ways that you, you know, just go out, find a customer, service them, and then multiply those customers. And if you can figure out how to do that, it doesn't really matter what you're making or what you're doing. Um, once you master those skills, you can, you can make money. So on being an entrepreneur and still getting time to be at home, the picture that I often see for for entrepreneurs is they're just always gone and they're working, 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 working and hustling and they're traveling. They're all over the country. Have you seen that yourself or do you still balance time with your family? Uh, so in my in my experience, I definitely felt that particularly in the beginning, um, you know, particularly when my wife and I were both working, I remember the first time we had enough business in the hopper that like, I didn't feel the, pre- like it was just a couple weeks worth of jobs lined up or income lined up. And it was like, okay, I can actually focus on getting a little more strategic in my business because it was hand to mouth for a long, long time. And I don't know that there's a way to avoid that in the beginning. Um, there's a great book by Michael Gerber. So the E-Myth by Michael Gerber and he talked basically, basically his thesis of that book is you need to get to a place where you can work on your business and not just in your business. So yes. Least, you know, in, the, in the beginning, <laughs> most people are what he calls the technician. You're the person actually doing the thing. You're providing the service or you're making the good. And that's fine. That's good. Um, and it's really unavoidable. You have to be that in the beginning. But eventually your goal should be to have enough business um, coming in and in the hopper that you can start to look out and start thinking a little more strategically rather than tactically. Um, and ultimately, he says that if you if you are just the technician, if you're the everything, if you're the chief everything officer, then you just own your job. Um, you don't really own a business. And that's better than, in my opinion, than having a job. 
because at least you're the owner, you're getting the benefits of it. But the goal eventually should be to own a business and the business runs whether you're involved in the day to day or not. So fortunately for me today, we've been able to slowly over time build up to a point where um, I don't have to be involved in the day to day. I have some people who are doing things, you know, I've delegated enough that I can start thinking more about the long term trajectory. And you only get there by building up enough business um, to where you, you don't have to be making a sale today to eat tomorrow. You know, now you're making a sale today um, to eat in three months or to invest back in the business. But it, but definitely for the first several years, it was very much, we got to make some money this week because we got to eat this week. And if we don't this week, we're not going to eat this week. Um, but that's, and that's, that's even fun for a while. Uh, and that, but you can't do that forever. Like you've got to get a point where you can take, take a breath, step back and, you know, enjoy the weekend. I mean, for a long time, I didn't know what a weekend was. Like it was no Saturday, Sunday, no different than all the rest of the weekdays. But finally we got to a point where I could start taking some time. Um, I mean, I do, I do recommend taking a Sabbath and, uh, you know, would always recommend, um, in the long term having at least one day a week where you try not to do much of any work. Um, but eventually we got to where a point where I can take most weekends off now. And that's a, it's a great place to be because if you don't eventually get there, you will burn out. And that's the people who are just frantic running from one thing to one thing for 10 years. And then, you know, I just not, it's not the way to go. It's yeah, it's not sustainable either. You're going to burn out and you're gonna, you can't do it forever. You just can't, you have to sleep. You have to spend time with friends and family. You have to take care of your body. You have to take care of your mind. You have to take care of your soul. You just, you can't just go, go, go all the time. And what was it like hiring that first person to help you with the business that you could delegate to? Cause I'm, uh, I'm sort of wondering is you feel like at first, like I don't have that much to give them. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you have a lot to give them at first? And, or did you like realize after you got the first person, like, whoa, I've got way more I can give this person than I thought. Uh, so for me, it was, I've got all this work to do. And, and actually my first guy, um, my first employee contacted me and he was looking for work and I had more work than I could do. And so we, I, I was basically really upfront with him. Like, Hey man, I've started this thing. Um, I can, I can't make any long-term commitment, but if you'll help me, I'll work on getting us enough business that, uh, you know, keep you busy for 40 hours a week or whatever. And, um, I started with, the, you know, try to set that expectation of we're both kind of, uh, you know, just feeling this out. And so I start, in that, in the beginning, it was, it felt like a risk because like, you know, when we get to, I, I, and I pay my employees every week. So if we get to the end of the week and we've not made money, like we're in a real time. Um, but we had enough business from the beginning to keep him busy. And that, that once again, once you are able to delegate some things that gives you even more time uh, and energy freed up to start thinking strategically and then to go out and try to get more long-term business secure. And so it was a pretty, uh, it, it was definitely a risk. It felt like a big risk, but in the end, it, you know, it felt like a risk, but it really was, it was the opposite because it was allowing me to get more long-term and get more, even more secure by doing that. And so I, I have found, and, and delegation, so delegation is one of the, in my opinion, one of the core skills of the entrepreneur. Like if you can't figure out how to delegate, you can't be an entrepreneur and you will always, in the best case scenario, only own your job. But if you can figure out how to delegate, which I'm still working on, all of a sudden you can accomplish way more because you're now empowering other people to do things and you're able to focus on what you do best and what the most value you add. So delegation is a skill that you've got to develop and you've got to keep developing it. I'm, I'm working on it all the time. 
and uh, hopefully I'll get better and better and can delegate more and more. But why do you pay your people every week? Um, that's just how I set how I set things up. We'll probably at some point transition to a more traditional two times a month. Um, I really I really like to feel money, James. Like I like I like to work and then get paid. And and I think you know that connection is really powerful. And if I'm doing work today that I you know I don't know when when if I'm getting paid today for work I don't know when I did that work. That connection, I think, can can affect this. So I try to pay as quickly as possible, um, just because that connection is really powerful to me. But in in terms of you know accounting and everything, it's definitely uh, simpler to do a more traditional pay schedule. I want to know where we can learn more about you, what you have going on, and then what we can support you with, and what what re- what's really exciting for you. Kind of wrap up with that. Absolutely. Well, I uh, do have a website, Jordan T. Hall, Tom, Jordan T. Hall.com. Um, and I do a little bit of blogging there um, on the on topics, typically wealth building or business building. Those are the things I'm passionate about these days. Uh, I have started a burgeoning YouTube channel, just Jordan Hall on YouTube, um, where I'll be sharing some videos about uh, building wealth and building your business, that sort of thing. I did also write a book, James, about my experience of paying for college and law school debt-free. Oh, you did? I did. Uh, It's called Every Degree Debt-Free, and it is available on Amazon. Wow. Okay. I will link to that book. I'll link to your YouTube channel. I'll link to all the books that you mentioned over in the show notes for this episode at quandall.com slash hall. That's quandall.com slash H-A-L-L. But what are you working on now? Because you've got so much going on. Sure. Well, my day-to-day businesses keep keep me pretty busy, so I'm I'm working on that a lot. I try to document what works for me and what doesn't work for me. So I'm uh, I'm doing some blogging on that sort of thing, and uh, you know that's I really like. Gosh, business is business is so key. Like if you if you're into running your own thing, it's a it's a way to build wealth for you, and it's a way to to make our economy better. Like I just think anybody who has an inkling to be an entrepreneur or run their own business should follow it because it's just so fulfilling and it's so needed, particularly in this day and age. So I'm just trying to encourage as many people as I can uh, to pursue entrepreneurship. And thank God for entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs are the creatives that are making all the opportunities that we have. All the businesses that are employing thousands now started with one person and a dream and a risk and they just stuck with it. Exactly. Just like just like yourself, James, you are uh, obviously an entrepreneur, and I appreciate everything you're doing to facilitate uh, people getting their messages out there. Uh, ever since I met you, you're just such an encourager. Your podcast is so great, um, and I, I appreciate you having me on. And you've got to keep up the good work because you are you're living the dream, and you're showing other people that they can do the same. Thank you, Jordan. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, James, and hopefully we'll see each other again soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of The James Quandall Show. The show notes for this episode and other goodies can be found at quandall.com. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the next episode. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. See you next time.